This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain on the Vancouver film and television industry and celebrate its beating heart. Namely, the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Rani Furminger. We continue our Stop Asian Hate series about the intersection of anti-Asian hate and the film and television industry. In our first episode, I spoke with actress Lexa Doig about cultural erasure of Asian North Americans in entertainment and the impact that centering whiteness has on how Asian Americans and Asian Canadians are treated in real life. Today, I am delighted to welcome actor and filmmaker Lee Shorten to the discourse, which actually would be a good name for a podcast and probably is the name of a podcast, The Discourse. The Discourse, yeah. (laughs) This is The Discourse. This is our conversation. Okay. Lee's acting filmography includes The Man in the High Castle, The Terror Infamy, and It's Not You, It's Not Me, a short film about asexuality. He wrote and directed Parabola, a moving short starring Hiro Kanagawa as an aging Yakuza assassin and Mayumi Yoshida as his emotionally fraught daughter. And he wrote and starred in The Day We Met, which was co-directed by Mayumi and Natch Dudes Dimeta and inspired by his own adoption story. And hopefully it won't be too long before we can see Lee's performance in Swan Song acting opposite Aquafina, Glenn Close, and Mahershala Ali. I've invited Lee back to the podcast to speak to the realities that Asian Canadian actors face in the Vancouver film and television industry and the ways in which these realities inform his own filmmaking. So Lee, Lee Shorten, hi. Hey, welcome, hey Sabrina, good to see you. Welcome back to the YVR Screen Scene podcast. Thank you, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a big question. Big question, um, that, that I mean, God, I, I'm almost welling up as I ask, um, but I think it's important, you know, to just to just start in this place. Have you experienced racism in the Vancouver film and television industry? Uh, yeah, yeah, of, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah, actually, it's of crazy. Course. I have to say, of course, but um, yeah. Yes. How has it? How has it manifested? I mean, it's in so many different ways, some small, some large, um, just like I, I think real, real life. I mean, film and TV is still real life in a way, but um, it, it, runs, it runs the spectrum, you know, and from 
you know, casting can, can be an issue. Although I will say, you know, the casting directors in our city are actually huge supporters of diversity and have always been champions of mine personally and a lot of my, you know, Asian friends. It's more the decision-making side, say. And then, you know, it, it might be, let me put it this way, there has, there has not been a single set except for Swan Song where it, it ha someone on that set hasn't assumed that I was a background actor as opposed to main cast. And that is not to say like background actors are lesser people or anything. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say, yeah. but it's like, if I know for a fact that our white colleagues never experienced that because mm. all the cast and crew are aware, Oh, that is, you know, John Smith and he is playing X person. It would never be like, that, that would never be called into question. Whereas, you know, there was a day on, on, on a show where I was with one of the Asian series regs on one of the later seasons and we're going up to crafty and, and they're just like, uh, excuse me, gentlemen, this, this, this is for the, the cast. And it's like, uh, it's shocking. It's like, this is the second season of the show. I'm with the number like six on the call sheet. If he was white, there is no way you wouldn't know that. Yeah. So. I mean, you've been using Twitter to identify the multitude of ways that the experiences of white actors and Asian actors differs in North America. Can you talk a bit more about some of the differences? Uh, I mean, like, obviously the large one is, is, is opportunity. You know, it, it's so funny because you constantly hear, oh, from, from, from certain white people, white actors, it's like, oh, it's such a good time to be, be a, you know, a, a BIPOC actor right now. And it's so tough for me. And it's like, listen... If you look at the studies, you know, five years ago, 90% of the speaking roles on television were white. They have dropped, they have dropped to a staggering, like 75%. So, so it's like, you know what, you, you might be getting slightly less opportunity than you did five years ago, but you still occupy three quarters of the pie. So, you know. but my main one is, look, There, there is an expectation a lot of the times that Asian actors do martial arts or speak multiple languages. And it's like a lot of the time you, you can't even read for a project. They won't even let you audition unless you already do those things. Hmm. Now, white actors, black, even black actors, when you look at it, it, that's not, not the way that it works. Usually they just let anyone audition, they cast the best actor, and then they train them. Mm. You can look at pretty much the whole cast of the MCU. Not many of them had fight training like previously, right? Yeah. They got the role, then they trained. Michael B. Jordan for Creed, didn't, he wasn't a boxer. Right? Kugler cast him because he's a phenomenal actor, gives him a year to get in shape, then they shoot the movie. Asian actors are never afforded the same time and resources that our white counterparts are. Hmm. When you speak out about these, these differences, when you point them out, because um, you're just, you're pointing out, you know, the, the truth as you see it. Um, what kind of feedback have you received, both from BIPOC actors and also from white actors? And is there a difference in the feedback you receive? Yes, there is. Um, I mean, it, it depends on which issue you're speaking about. Because um, the question of general opportunity, you tend to get a lot of pushback from white actors. 
um, like we kind of just touched on. Not all of them. You know, like I'm making broad sweeping statements, but there's always, you know, exceptions and nuance. But, and, and, of course, you get a lot of support from the BIPOC community because they understand. Mm. Interestingly, when you start to speak out about, say, martial arts and language, it almost flips because you get a lot of white actors who are like, oh, my God, I had no idea that they have all these prereqs on you and all these higher expectations because how would they know? Right. And then you get a lot of BIPOC actors who were like, yeah, well, you know what? You should speak two languages or I have worked really hard on, on my martial arts. So I should, that should be the requirement and you shouldn't get to read for it, even though like, I, I think because, you know, we all have privilege in different ways. And I think they've never really thought about how actually I'm not, you know, they take it personally and it's like, I'm not attacking you or trying to take away from your hard work or your skills in the same way. When we talk about white privilege, we're not taking away from people's hard work and skills. We're talking about institutional and structural inequality. We're talking about the fact that Asian actors have a different standard placed on them than white actors. So it's always a little disappointing to me when, when my, when my fellow BIPOC actors start taking it personally. And it's things like, you know, like the, the issue of authentic casting, like super specific authentic casting. Like this role must be Chinese. This role must be Japanese. Whereas again, white actors will be like, you know what? I can play Scottish, Irish, Ukrainian, Russian, American. Yeah, it's good. You should just play. And then you find it's the BIPOC community. He's like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't have, a, have, a, have a Chinese person play Korean and you can't have a Japanese person play Chinese. But yet it always seems to be when it benefits those in power because A, unless it's historical or biopic, uh, biopic, I don't think it's really an issue. And when you look at like almost every Asian actor who is big now got their start playing an ethnicity that wasn't theirs. Hmm. I'm wondering if, if then there are people in, in the white supremacist structure, you know, in the industry who, who would be um, happy about that. You'd be like, you know, if they're, if they're arguing among themselves and they're not going to focus on, you know, the, the, the other issues that are there, you know, like, our, well, I guess the, the thing is to say, are we having the wrong conversations then, you know, with, within the BIPOC communities? Well, I, I think two parts. To that latter part, I think sometimes it comes from a scarcity mentality, mm-hmm. this belief that there's, there's not enough so I have to do everything in my power to get what's mine and hold on to what's mine. And I can't possibly cede ground to anyone else for fear of, of losing out. Right? That's, I think that's partly what drives that. And probably also like, you know, um, we do have years and years of history behind us. And, and there is certainly a lot of, you know, interesting history between Japan and Korea, for example, or, mm. or you know, between Southeast Asia and, and East Asia. In terms of the first, you know, I think Jeff Yang put it the best. A lot of the times the, the white decision makers, it's like they'd rather be politically correct than culturally sensitive. So it's easier to say, hey, hey, let's just only read Chinese actors for Mulan because then we can't get in trouble rather than actually do the work to, to understand the culture and the things and then hire authentically based on who who can actually understand and bring that story. What role do you think the film and television industry has played 
in stoking anti-Asian racism or reinforcing damaging stereotypes about Asian people? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's played a significant role because, because the, because you do never see us on television or rarely. And when you do, it's token or stereotype. And invariably that means that women are submissive or quirky or, or overly sexualized. And the men are, you know, uh, villainous usually, you know, they're, they're, they're villains. So of course, a lot of people develop their understanding of communities outside their own through television because you know if you grow in up in the midwest and maybe there's not a large asian population even though you know it's fiction you're probably going to allow what you see on television to to slightly color your expectations i mean a a classic example i remember when i was traveling america and uh, i was with a friend's family in in the midwest and we were at thanksgiving and the grandma we were talking about how i was from australia and the grandma says to me and, and, you know, God bless her. Um, it's a generational thing. She's like, I didn't know they had the slanty eyes in Australia. Oh. Um, and, and, you know, like, it's not even, obviously that's horrible for Asian Awful. But I, I, in, in a way, it's like she didn't see it that way. It's, you know, it's, it's partially a generational thing, which is not to excuse it, but to, to explain. But again, it's, you know, it's, and it's like I had to say, well, Australia is like America. You know, we're, we're a multicultural country that has a diverse background. And because she's only ever seen white Australians on television, she, it would never cross her mind that Australia was anything but like this pure white country. So, so I do think, of course, the film and TV industry plays a large part in what happens. Um, I, I'm curious about the fact that you stay in the industry as an actor, you know, despite the, the, the racism and the microaggressions and, and, you know, just the, the heartache that, that you have experienced, you know, have there been moments where you have thought of walking away and because of the fact that it's founded in white supremacy? And if, and if so, like what keeps you, what keeps you in this industry as an actor? Uh, I mean, I, I think t- t- to be fair, it's hard on actors in general. The acting industry is so, is, is, it's a lottery and, you know, a, a lot of talented people of all walks of life don't make it and think about walking away in this brutal. <clears throat> and sure, we face additional challenges. And I think the reason we don't walk away as a general rule is because we all couldn't really do anything else. Like, hmm. Love it. <laughs> you know, and, and the, and the one day you're on set almost makes up for like the 30 days, you know, of, of heartbreak. Uh, in terms of like specifically, you know, as an Asian actor, I think, I think I have, I think I have a responsibility because if we God, and this sounds so like self-important and dramatic and but whatever, but it's like, if, 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 if you say that, that, that the industry is a reflection of society and that we acknowledge that the, the way we portray things on screen can affect the world. We all as 
people as Asians, as Latinas, of whatever, have to live in the world. We can't just walk out of the world. Mm. So then if I am, if I can be in the film industry and I can contribute to change, then I can't walk away from that in the same way I can't walk away from just existing in the world. It's my responsibility to stay and try and make things better. Yeah. And you're not only staying in the industry as an actor, you're also a filmmaker. And I have described your films as fearless. You know, you haven't shied away from nuanced questions around race and identity. What, what drives your filmmaking? I mean, I think... I, I would just say, you know, generally, it is a desire to tell stories that I haven't seen that I wish I had, you know, um, it's, I look at, I look at all the stories I enjoyed as a kid and, and I see there's, there weren't many Asian people. And then I look at my friends who are these very talented Asian actors. And I think you should be working more or you haven't played this type of role. And then I, I have a desire to marry the two. So I'm going to create a story that I've never seen and I'm going to cast actors who have never got to tell that story. Right. I mean, that you're reminding me of, of years ago when we talked about Parabola. That was you, you were, had worked with Hiro and Mayumi on High Castle and you wanted, you had never seen either of them play the specific roles, you know, or types of roles that they ended up playing in your film. So right. Practice what you, you really practice <laughs> what, you, what you preach. I, well, I try. I mean, we're all human and, <laughs> and fallible. So. What have you learned about, about Asian Canadians in the film and television industry through making these films? You know, and specifically about the future of storytelling. You know, because before I hit, we started recording, I was t- telling you that, you know, looking at the, the Asian Canadian voices, you know, telling stories in Vancouver, you know, I, I can't help but be excited. You know, despite everything else going on in the zeitgeist, you know, there are, there are some really remarkable stories being told by, you know, remarkable artists. People like Mayumi, you know, and, and Natch and Lawrence and, and um, Andrea and Diana Bang and like, you know, just awesome, awesome voices from, from many different cultures, you know, from the diaspora. Yeah, um... I'm very excited for it too. I, I think, and, and yeah, I wonder how it came about. I don't even it just seem to be like there was a moment and we all are around the same age and we all crossed paths here and there and started introducing each other to one another and, and then the momentum just kept growing. So well, there was that crazy eights where everybody was working on each other's films as well. Right. You know, and, and then there was also story hive as well, you know, has also been a great um, generator incubator, you know, for these, for these Asian Canadian voices, you know? So I, I just like, I'm like, yeah, like looking at this community and the, and the stories that have been told and the stories that are about to be told, you know, like, what is this, what is this, what can this tell us about the future? You know, is this, is this an indication that things are getting better, you know, or that, or, 
you know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious what you think this tells us. Uh, to me, the first thing that this tells us is that our parents' dreams were a success because, you know, a lot of them, you know, I got, again, this is a general blanket statement, but, you know, so many people immigrate, you know, for a better life and a better future for their children. Yeah. So if their children are in a place where they feel like they can pursue the arts as opposed to like they have to grind it out for survival, mm-hmm. then I think that is the success of immigration. Because, you know, like so many people view the arts as a luxury. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if your children feel like they can pursue the arts, you have obviously done, you've achieved the dream you set out to achieve. Yeah. So I, I think that's the first thing that it tells us. Um, uh, now I've lost my train of thought totally. But, um, well, we were we were talking about about what these films can tell us about what's in store. You know what these films and and oh right right films can tell us about what the future holds. I'm I'm asking you to gaze into my crystal. Ball. Yeah, I I'm a terrible cynic, unfortunately. So that was the hopeful part of the story. No, the second part is. I don't know because we're still on the very much the early indie days. So I don't know if any of us will crack that next level. Yeah. And I think although there has been a a bit of a surge in Asian content lately, um, A, people thought that before, you know, when Joy Luck Club was out or mm. better luck tomorrow or so people have always said it's the new wave and then the wave recedes. Yeah. So uh, I'm worried about that. And again, I would say when you, when you, and Steven June has touched on this too, but when you look, even though there is this influx of Asian content, it is by and large, very specific. It is martial arts shows. Mm. It is period pieces. Yep. It is just immigrant stories. Not, you know, not just them, but like, we, we're at this, as Stephen would say, we're at the second stage, but the only Asian stories that are allowed to be told. Being Asian is the central driving fundamental narrative thing, as opposed to getting to the third stage where it's informative and influences, but not the core reason for existing in the story or the core reason for the story to exist. You know, like Denzel can just be Denzel. He doesn't, it's not always about him being a black man, right? No Asian story right now exists where being Asian isn't the sole or main narrative driver. It's almost like these, these storytellers, the story, it's like they need to justify their existence, you know, in a white centered entertainment industry. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I was even thinking about, um, about Minari, you know, and, and this kind of the pushback against Minari, you know, the reluctance for award bodies to categorize it as an American film, despite the fact that it's an American film, you know, what in, you're talking about waves receding, but I'm wondering how much of the waves receding in terms of these quote unquote trends of, oh, it's the time for Asian stories is in fact a pushback, you know, like, what, what do you think? Like, do you think it's a pushback? And, and if so, like, what does this pushback tell us about how, you know, Asian North Americans are perceived in the, you know, the general culture or in the film and TV industry in particular? 
I don't know if it's a deliberate pushback. It, it, it might be. Um, I, I, think, I think I've always said that the biggest problem facing any of us is that every, that end to end, every stage, every step of filmmaking is dominated by a, a, a white, straight male point of view. Financiers, producers, you know, casting, although that's, that's more um, women, but white women, you know, directors, writers, um, actors, festival programmers, critics. So, so the whole spectrum, so, so the whole spectrum is white. And I think, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a deliberate pushback or just because the whole chain is one point of view, it's very hard to make a dent because even if you make a dent in this stream, then you get pushed back here, which then influences back down the stream because it's like, you know, you need an Oscar to then leverage it, to get financing, to do other things. So even if you successfully get Minari made, but then Minari is a fo- considered a foreign film, then, then you don't get the leverage to keep going. So, so even if you have this whole Asian creative team here, when you move downstream to say criti- the critics, and the Hollywood Foreign Press puts it in as, as not an American film, then you still haven't shifted the ball enough. So that's, to get the momentum to actually enact change involves changing the whole, the whole chain, which is Unplugging very- it and plugging it back in again, or literally just like breaking it all down and rebuilding it from scratch. Yeah, kind of. And again, sometimes I also, it's like, there is a fear, there is a fear of, uh, you know, from say a writer, I'm not equipped to tell this Asian story. So rather than even try and fail or bring on an Asian writing partner, I'll just keep writing white stories Hmm. or, you know, from a critic being like, I can't really engage with this Asian story. So I'm just going to kind of like write half-ass review and then engage with the story I can engage with. So, so sometimes it's not even a deliberate pushback. It's this maybe a fear that they don't want to put a step wrong. Mm. They, they don't want to have the vulnerability to engage with something that's a little bit outside their wheelhouse. So they'd rather just not. <sighs> I mean, it almost feels like we're at a, we're at a bit of a stalemate then, you know, like, and I think that this is where allies you know, who are willing to do the work um, can, can help to at least move things along. You know, what do, what, do you th- what, what do you think it means to be a good ally, you know, to, you know, Asian actors in our industry? Uh, Asian I, actors, you, Asian creators. Creators, I yeah. I mean, <laughs> You know, it's like the, the bit of the meme. And again, it's always black Twitter. So thank you. Uh, it's like, open your damn purse. Like that's, that's what it means. So yeah. uh, fund, fund more Asian content. Um, put more Asian films in your film festival. Write more about, you know, Asian films. And, and that isn't even to say like, just give them all glowing reviews, but like actually engage with them or, you know, and that isn't to say too, just like fund every crappy movie idea that comes along, but like, but like, yeah, just put your money where your mouth is. I mean, 
people were talking about like Jay Leno and it's wonderful that he finally apologized. I don't know if you saw that, but like he- Yeah, I, I saw that. And I saw that he also said that he knew it was wrong at the time. Right. Um, and I'm glad he apologized. I, I honestly am. And I'm also glad he was like, and it's not even cancel culture. I was wrong. And I knew it was wrong. Beautiful. And then as a lot of my friends have said, okay, but you profited off that for years. Like you're a wealthy man. So your apology is just the beginning. If you actually want to atone, open, open your purse. Like, fine, take some of your profits and donate them to some, uh, especially now, some, some Asian American charities and, and organizations. And yeah. maybe give back to some of these victims' families. Or, or yeah, use your influence to, to, to support some up-and-coming Asian filmmakers. Like, do something. Yeah. Do something tangible. Yeah. Especially, yeah, to atone for all of the hurt that was caused. You know, I'm thinking, um, oh my God, what film was it? Fisher Stevens in Brownface as an, as an Indian, as a, as an Indian man. And I remember, see, I, I, what was it? Batteries Uncluded or Short Circuit or something like along those. Yeah. I think it's Short Circuit. Yeah. Yeah, And it was very painful. I remember just watching that and just feeling very uncomfortable knowing as a child that, that, that was, that was to make fun of my dad. You yeah, know. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, and that, but that kind of, I mean, we've all, we, you, all of us who are BIPOC, we have had those, those experiences of being, you know, traumatized by this industry that we all <laughs> love. That we love so much. But, you know, that's why we're in it, right? We're, we want to change the, I mean, that's why I, I own my own company now, you know, and put out my own content, right? I want to be part of um, cha- just making the change, you know? Um, Lee Shorten. If you could go back in time to the beginning of your career to give, what do they say? Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> uh, the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed version of, of you, you know, before you entered this industry. Some, some words of wisdom, you know, about, about you know, what you were facing as what you would be facing as far as, you know, racist microaggressions or explicit racism, um, it, either from colleagues or just from what you're watching, you know, what would you say? It, like as, as advice to how to deal with it or? Yeah. I mean, the same could even be, you know, if you like to advice to, to, you know, actor, Asian, Canadian, Asian, American actors who are, are, you know, just stepping into the scene now. Um, you know, what's something that you know now that you wish you knew then? I, you know, and, and I tell this to all the, the, the young BIPOC actors I meet because, you know, invariably they're in schools studying acting, which is great and, and whatever. And the thing is, again, 90% of the teachers in Vancouver are straight white males. Mm. And I, you know, and again, this is not, not shade at them and, and God bless them because I had a lot of wonderful teachers and a lot of wonderful mentors and, and a lot of people who went out of the way to really help me. But what I say is, is that a lot of the times I've come to learn the advice they give you outside of like acting, like the advice about navigating the business or, or you know, all that stuff 
is not relevant to you because it is it is a it is from their experience in POV as as a straight white man. And that is not going to be your experience in, in the industry. So when they say, oh, you can just do this, they can just do that. But you, if you try to just do that, you, you will not have the same level of success. And in fact, it could be detrimental to, to your career. So I would say to young actors and, and, and a reminder to my younger self would be to remember to filter everything that's told to you through the lens and the context of the person giving it to you to work out whether or not it is actually relevant and applicable to you. That is fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Lee Shorten, for being here today. Where can our listeners find you, follow you, celebrate you on all the social meds, social meds? Social meds. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, both at LC Shorten. LC Shorten. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners, too. Uh, the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Firminger, and edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Mariana Firminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Firminger for technical support, and to Dane Not Firminger Devalet for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Find us on all the socials at YVR Screen Scene on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts for free, and at our home on the web at yvrscreenscene.com. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And stop Asian hate. And cut. In the current COVID-19 environment, UBCP ACTRA, the BC Performers Union in the film and TV industry, has been working closely with industry partners, formulating sensible and practical guidelines for all cast and crew to ensure working on set is manageable and safe for everyone. UBCP ACTRA has created a dedicated COVID-19 webpage at www.ubcpactra.ca where members can find mental health resources, financial assistance information, and back-to-work strategies and updates about the current status of film production in the province of British Columbia. UBCP ACTRA knows this has been an extraordinarily difficult time for many people, and we look forward to better days ahead. We will get through this together. Please visit www.ubcpactra.ca. A message from UBCP ACTRA.